This is Steve Colfer, head coach at Covernia University. You are listening to More Than a Club Podcast. Welcome to the More Than a Club podcast with Marty Cuprian and Delay. Welcome back to More Than a Club podcast for episode nine of season two. I'm your host, Bill Leahy, along with Coach Marty Cuprian, and we will we are grateful to be with you again as we make our way through these unique times together. I think we have another interesting show for you, highlighted by another great guest. How about you, Coach Coop? Thanks, Bill. As always, pretty jacked up. I uh, wanted to thank uh, our listeners out there. Our numbers are growing. We had a few new reviews recently, so we definitely appreciate that, and it helps uh, if you spread the word. Uh, just as we grow the game, let's help us grow the podcast. So another excellent guest today, Bill. Sure is. Today, like usual, we will touch on aspects of lacrosse for players, parents, and coaches. I'm excited to announce that joining us will be Coach Brian Silcott, who joins us from Jamaica, where he currently volunteers with the Jamaican national team. Welcome, Coach. Thanks, guys. Really uh, excited to be here. Um, and, and, and happy to be coming from the warm weather of Jamaica as well. <laughs> yeah, it's 19 degrees here, like we said, pre-show, and uh, we're jealous. You were out on the beach today or out and about? I bet you it's gorgeous, huh? Uh, I actually uh, did some phone calls from the beach today. It was, it was, it was lovely. Um, but I am working here, so it's not all, not all fun and games. <laughs> well, we're going to make you work a little bit more tonight, and we're thrilled. So I'm going to go over your resume for our listeners. Uh, we did this earlier. It's quite impressive, and um, I hope I make you proud. So here we go. As a player, collegiately, Nazareth College, two-time Division III All-American, National Midfielder of the Year, and a D3 National Championship. Professionally, 11 pro seasons in the MLL and NL, plus four-time captain of the Boston Cannons. As a coach, a stint with Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, and Wentworth in Boston, where you were named Commonwealth Coast Conference Coach of the Year. Defensive coordinator at Nazareth College in 1996 with another national championship head coach of the Scottish national team, which we can't wait to talk about, former head coach of the San Francisco Dragons of the MLL, and then into an entire professional career of lacrosse outside of playing and coaching, where you're a national men's game director for U.S. lacrosse and a current board member, Portland Lumberjacks of the NLL, executive director of the Firehawks Lacrosse Club, director of operations for Jamaica Lacrosse, and very impressively, and most recently, hired PLL Head of Player Experience. Hall of Fame of your high school and a U.S. Lacrosse Hudson Valley chapter member. What I miss, Coach? Quite the list. Uh, I, honestly, one of the highlights of my career for me is playing old man lacrosse. Uh, I, like I now run around with the old guys. I play with the older statesmen and a bunch of other guys. And, I, and it's, you know, had a lot of great experiences. But playing 40 and over and 50 over lacrosse, that's, that's the highlight for me now. I like it. You're still at it. So before we roll into our show, how about a little background, you know, outside of that long list of lacrosse accomplishments, your family. And then, of course, I want to hear about the CEO of Oregon State Fair. Sounds wild. Yeah, well, my interesting enough, my family, um, my wife was a lacrosse player as well. She played at Syracuse University, was on the inaugural uh, Syracuse University women's team, um, was a, a great player herself and coached at Bryant University, a Division One program as well. Um, I now have a seven year old son who is uh, a, I would say, burgeoning lacrosse player. He's just kind of getting the bug for the first time. Um, yeah, CEO of the Oregon State Fair and Expo Center. Um, you know, I, I've tried to escape lacrosse a few times in my life and, and 
take, taking a dive into other things, but um, somehow it always comes back to lacrosse for me. And, and the, the, the gig with the Oregon State Fair and Expo Center was really an interesting one. I was in Portland from having worked with the Lumberjacks and we shut the team down and that position popped up and it was a great experience. Um, got to learn a lot about the ag world and farming and, and all kinds of things in addition to running a, a massive complex. Um, but it was, it was an interesting time in my life, one I enjoyed, um, but it was from there that I moved back east and, and took the position with U.S. Lacrosse. Nice. So my son loves all that stuff, right? He's like an outdoorsman, fisherman. I go with him to all these state fairs and the Pennsylvania State Fair. So I get your vibe. It's pretty impressive when you go to those things. Yeah. I've never realized how many things you can deep fry. Yeah. Or, <laughs> or make out of butter. I used to see these butter statues and be like, that is just wild. <laughs> That's hilarious. So I could tell this episode uh, is going to be one we're laughing, also learning. Uh, and that'll take us to our youth sports hot topic. Uh, just hearing your resume and, and thinking about Nazareth and then some of your coaching stops uh, outside of Naz. I can tell I'm going to learn a lot talking to you, Brian, but I know that um, our listeners will as well. So, um, so many of our guests have been Division One, you know, players or coaches or our conversation has been focused there. Um, much of your time spent playing and coaching D3. What are your initial insights and things you'd want uh, our listening audience to know, whether it's players, parents, or coaches? Um, just kind of drop some knowledge on D3. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think what D3 offers is, is, a, is a different type of lacrosse experience. And I think that um, for every player out there, there's different things they're looking for in their college experience. And, and sometimes that's not even based entirely on their talent level. You know, it could be based on their educational needs, their desire to do more things than just play lacrosse in college. Um, obviously, D D3 is a little bit different now than it was when, when I was there. Um, but I think the a fundamental thing to understand is that, A, Playing Division Three lacrosse does not mean you're, you know, you're not playing a high level lacrosse. It doesn't mean you're not training your your butt off and and getting up in the morning and and doing exercise and all of those other things we hear about D1 guys doing. The D3 guys are doing most of that as well, on top of doing their schoolwork and everything else. Um, I think that in D3 though, it, it is a the, the pressure is off a little bit, um, and in certain conferences like the NESCAC. Um, you know, there's more restrictions on what guys can do out of season and, and how much contact coaches can have with the players. Um, you know, so I know a lot of guys that play in the NESCAC that also um, ski all winter, you know, because they don't nice. have stuff they have to do. The coach isn't allowed to demand their time or they're two sport athletes. You know, they play soccer and they're not really missing fall across because fall across isn't allowed to be to, to go on. You know, they're not missing some time with their coach if they play soccer or football in the fall season. Um, so I think, you know, for me, D3 was an awesome opportunity and you know I, I still went on to play professionally um and you know a lot of folks ask you know do you, do you wish you played d1 and, and i really don't not for a second i loved my experience in division three um it was the right place for me to play at the time and it, and it fully prepared me to be a professional lacrosse player as well how about the recruiting process did you find as a d3 coach that that was significantly different than d1 or similar it, it is, it is much different. Um, it is, it, I think there's a few bigger differences. One is just the timeline is different, right? That you can chase after whoever you want, but you know that, you know, if the D1 guys find this kid, they're going to, they're going to take him away from you. If they really, if they really want him in most situations, they're probably going to change their mind. I also think that um, there's a lot more emphasis on, on selling the school um, than, than selling the, the lacrosse program. And there's, there's still, there's obviously D3 kids that make the choice solely based on lacrosse to some extent, but 
you know, you're not offering kids money. Um, you're offering them a, a chance to pay for school. Um, you're, you, you, the academics, I think, are more highly considered by a lot of those kids and, and the school atmosphere. Um, and, and there's a lot more choices. You know, there's a lot more Division three schools than there are Division one schools. So a kid that is going Division three, the, the, it just opens a much broader spectrum of schools for them to look at. And so the timeline gets reduced because you're kind of coming in after the division one guys and you're trying to compete with a much broader um, bunch of coaches going after the, after the kids. Um, but in the end, the kids weed themselves out largely in, in division three because of academics. Um, you know, the academic standards are, you don't get a whole lot of exceptions usually to the academic standards in, in division three. So often the admissions department is telling who you, who, and who, who can't play for your lacrosse team. Right. You do my heart good because of my 28 years as a high school head coach, I had almost two kinds of parents. Most were the first type, which was we're thrilled that our son will find a good fit school, whether, whether it's Division One or Division Three, and we're thrilled with the academics and, of course, the relationship with the coach and what we're looking for in a lacrosse program. And they were just really happy when their young person found the right place. And then there was a smaller group that just was kind of D1 or bust. And... And that was always disappointing for me because I thought a young man could go on to a great school and have a super lacrosse career, um, hoping that's fading away. But and mom and dad just still love them, you know, no matter where they end up. I think <laughs> they, that, yeah. That's sometimes well, what they so get I lost. Guess, I, yeah. I, I got to I, I, I believe this with all of my heart that if you if your stance is that if I can't play Division One, I'm not going to play lacrosse you probably can't play division one lacrosse because you don't love it enough. Um, because in the end you have to love it. If you don't love going to practice or you don't love playing the game for the sake of playing the game, you're not going to make it in, in, in division one. You're just going to get washed aside by the guys that, that do truly love it. Um, and now the other side of it, I agree with you completely that, you know, lacrosse is about individual experiences in the end. And, and that's different for everybody. And something that I've found is that most people end up in the right place. They may not know it at the time, but most guys end up in the right place. And I would say, you know, obviously I know a lot of lacrosse players and no one that I really know has ever finished division three and said, you know, gosh, I wish I played division one. You know, I think everyone has great experiences. Everyone thinks the 40 guys on their team were the 40 best guys in the world. Most guys think their coach was great. And most guys graduate with a good college experience. And most of the guys that, that that isn't the case for transfer once they're in and they, they are able to find another path and something that fits them, fits them better. And I think it's unfortunate when the pressure is coming from parents to push the kids into making a decision that's not right for them because the parents want to be able to say, my son plays division one or, or have made up their mind and aren't listening to their child when they're saying they want something else out of life. Um, it's an unfortunate situation that definitely does happen and, and it usually doesn't end well. Um, and, and those are often kids that you see that are super talented players that we never figure out, you know, why they never panned out. And it's maybe because they went to the wrong place and they were pressured to go there. Yeah, great advice for our listeners, especially our parents who are listening, Coach, which takes us right into our next segment, which is really for, for coaches who are listening, my favorite segment, X and O's. So let's talk a little bit about midfielders. You were a great one, straight up, really impressive. So do you have any initial thoughts of what makes a really strong mid midfielder today? Well, <laughs> um, being a midfielder today is a little bit different than, than when I played. Um, I, I can recall my last game in college playing against Hobart 
And I ran on the first midfield line playing offense and defense, faced off for both the first and second midfield line, <laughs> played man up and played man down. And that just doesn't happen anymore. That's not what a midfielder yeah. is anymore. Days. That's like Love five different, that's like five Great. different guys. <laughs> um, so honestly, what I, what I would talk about, I guess, in the funny, I think that the closest thing to that was probably Zach Courier, you know, not that long ago at Princeton kind of was all over the place, but I don't, I don't know if we'll even see another Zach Courier again in the, in the, in the, in the future. Um, but when I think about what a coach is looking for, and I, and I really think this extends beyond midfielders to some extent, um, you know, there's always the, you want skill, you want athletes. That goes, that's kind of, right, that, everyone wants that. You want guys that are fast, you want guys that are big and strong, you want guys that have great stick skills. Those things are the obvious things. Um, but I think what coaches really look for, because there's a lot of those guys out there now, right? There's a lot of big, strong, fast guys that can play the game now. What coaches want is, A, someone that's going to serve the team. You know, me guys get in the way all the time. Coaches want someone that's going to serve the team. and doesn't just say that, but truly plays that way, talks that way, um, is that way in the locker room, is that way in all times. Um, the second one is coaches want smart players. Being big, fast, strong, athletic, great stick skills. If, if you can't see the game, if you can't see what's going on in the field and interpret things, you're going to make too many mistakes to be successful. I think that's an area where sometimes non-traditional area guys have struggled a little bit, not because they're not smart, but because they've been so much better than the talent around them that they haven't had to play smart. Um, and it takes them a while sometimes to sort that out once they get to college and get up to speed with, with the Long Island guys and the Baltimore guys and the upstate guys that have been playing against great competition for so long where they had to do the right thing to be successful. Um, the other one I would mention is, is coaches want guys that are going to fit into their culture. Right, that are going to fit into the locker room, that they, 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 they believe in the things that they believe in. That is different from, from program to program. And you know, if, if, you, know, you can see that when you look at coaches, that the, the teams tend to be in their, in their mold. You know, uh, uh, John Tillman, a lot of his players are kind of similar in a lot of ways, and they have success in part because they, they all get along well and they all play together well. And that's carried right over into the PLL, whereas the Whip Snakes are winning, yeah. <laughs> winning championships together still. You know, and you hear coaches talk a lot about building culture and, and you do have to build it in your, in your locker room, but it's a lot easier to build when you bring in guys that, that already buy in and already fit into to what you're trying to do. Yeah, you mentioned old school where you did like five different things out there. And I love that because in my later years at LaSalle, I'd say to a guy, all right, you, you know, what do you do? He's like, oh, I'm a right-handed midfielder. And I'd say, yeah, I got 19 of them. Just get in line. You know, can you do anything else? You know, can you face off? No, nah, I don't really do that. <laughs> can you play attack? No, nah, I can't do that either. And I'm like, all right, so you would be third on the depth chart, <laughs> but instead you're 19. Right? So what else are you bringing to serve the team? And in, in return, you're going to get on the field that way. You know, I have a good story with a midfielder a couple years ago in 19 who his answer to me was, I can also play attack. So he was like the fifth attackman. Two guys get hurt. All of a sudden he's starting. And then fast forward to recruiting time when Bill Tierney calls me and he says, I'm really interested in, you know, in Tommy. And I said, why is that coach? And he said, because he can do four things. He can be an attackman. He can be a midi. I like him on the wings on some of your faceoffs when you're desperate. But most of all, I'm going to make him a D midi. <laughs> and I'm like, really? Because I wasn't going to do that. <laughs> but he said, I can get four guys right in this one kid and see how it works out where I'm always terrified, and I had mentioned to you this when we talked uh, a week ago, but when I get a guy who says I'm a D-Mitty, I'm like, uh-oh, because what happens if you fail there? 
<laughs> what else you got? Because I can take an offensive player who doesn't do too well scoring goals and handling the stick at high school level and, and make him a D midi. Yeah. Yeah, but what happens if you're a D midi and you fail? Then, then where do you go? <laughs> then you're kind of, yeah, you're done. Brian, could you give us a few names, uh, maybe a few from the past and a few from, you know, right now, PLL, that you would describe as, you know, more complete, just beast midfielders that you love to watch or love to play with? Um, yeah, you, you're talking to play both ends of the field? Or, yeah, or just some of your, maybe your favorite midfielders, you know? of Favorite midfielders, well, um, gosh. Uh, yeah. Sorry to put you on the spot. We could come back to it later. So. It's hard not to start with Trevor Baptiste, and he's not a complete midfielder. He's a he's a fogo, but he's just I mean, he's Trevor Baptiste, the guy is just yeah. awesome. Um, he's great to listen to. He makes me laugh every time we're on the phone together. Um, yeah, and another guy that's really a specialty guy because he only plays offense. But I love I love Connor Kelly's game. Um, I think he's fantastic. Uh, Sergio Salcido's the dude. I love to watch play. Um, tons of the guys, the Canadians that are now playing in the midfield and bringing the box style into yep. the field game, just make me smile when I watch them play. Austin Stotts, uh, Dane Smith, um, just so much fun to watch them execute uh, in, in the midfield. Um, D middies, I, I do like. Uh, Haas is, is one that, you know, he, he's a guy that probably could have run on Duke's first midfield line as an O midi and was just more valuable to John Donowski as a D midi. So that's what he played all the way through his career. At Duke, he never played on the first midfield line, never played on an offensive midfield line, and probably was as good enough to be in the first midfield line. You know, he's just a complete, complete a athlete. Um, I also really like uh, uh, Zach Goodrich, who's coming into the the uh, PLL now from the from the Thompson guy from the ML. Yeah, that kid's a stud. <laughs> he can play lacrosse. I mean, he is he is a shutdown D midi. Like he just guards people and they don't beat him. So I'm, I'm looking forward to watching him play in the PLL this year. Yeah, speaking of Canadians, which you mentioned, and I'm a big fan, having uh, helped out with under-19 USA team and been in Canada for a while and watching their style and the way they play, do you have any insights of what those young men have brought to the game? Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, it, it, the, the influx of the, the Canadian style of play has, has completely changed the game. I mean, it's changed the way offenses run. I mean, offenses are so much different. College coaches all over the place are fully aware of the advantages of of having righties on the right side and lefties on the lights, right, left side, even up top. So many guys are using the two-man game from, you know, Duke, Duke's using it, Ohio State uses it. Um, you know, there's so many clubs that, are, um, colleges that are playing with it now. And I think that what they, in big picture though, what they brought was the idea that, that you as a player can dictate play and you don't, you don't have to have two hands to be good if you're smart and have great, skills like you can you can get around that if the offense is built to accommodate it and you play intelligently don't get yourself into situations you can't get out of and and what it demands though is you spend a ton of time with your stick and I think that that's maybe the biggest contribution that they've raised the expectation in terms of stick skills across the board and it's obviously started back longer ago but the gates were really the first ones that brought it into the scene but at the time they were the exception and now it's the rule. You have to have great stick skills if you're going to play on offense in college um, and obviously in the pros as well. Yeah, lots of our guys at LaSalle, we, we implemented an awful lot of Canadian principles and two-man games in my later years. But it was fun to hear the guys then debate as they learned more and saw the game differently. They would have these b debates. 
uh, they'd say like, oh boy, should we have our sticks on the inside or the outside? Because in box, you have your stick on the inside all the time, no matter what. You're not shooting across your body. You have your stick in the inside frame of that goal. So if I'm inside, should I have my stick on my right hand or my left hand? And we'd say, well, do you want to play like a Canadian or an American, <laughs> buddy? <laughs> but we'd have these. Like the alley dodge is, is, is going the way of the dinosaur. Correct. Right? Like, like coaches, coaches are benching guys for alley dodging. And it used to be what we taught everyone to do yep. all the time. But the reality is it's a lower percentage shot, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's harder to score on that shot. And goalies have gotten so much more athletic that they're eating those shots up. And if, if you can't attack the middle of the field, it's getting harder and harder to score. Yeah, the other great debate was what's open and what's not open. You know, to a Canadian, it's a small window. You put Everything the ball at the open. head. <laughs> correct, on the head of the stick. Just throw me the ball, yeah. buddy. We'd have guys who say, he's not open. I'd say, in Canada, he'd be open. Then we'd have the kids, we would call them the Gretzky team, the kids who could play like Canadians. So we didn't ask everybody to do it, just those who had proven to us in winter box that they could do it. And then they'd say, oh, yeah, he's open. <laughs> I feel like we're having an internal debate and dispute among our guys about what's open or not. But that's what that style and flair brought to our team, greater discussion. I, I ran in college with a guy named Cam Bomberry. He was an All-American MIDI, uh, great box player as well. When, he was an MVP of the Minto Cup up in Canada. He's from uh, Six Nations. And I can remember in practice, you know, him looking at me, like throw me the ball, me looking at him like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> all over you. Why would I possibly throw you the ball? But he was wanting me to do it because he was going to catch it and score, you know? And I'm looking at him as like, dude, you are not open. There's no way I should pass you the ball. Great stuff, coach. So our third section, it's about culture building. And you have so much experience internationally that I thought it would be fun to ask you about the cultures of the Scottish team and the Jamaican team and not only how you got involved, but what is, what is it like and how do the guys revolve around each other and what do you bring to it? So it's really different for our listeners. We always talk about Team USA or Team Canada or books that we're reading on culture building, but this is definitely outside our usual wheelhouse. Yeah, I mean, this, the, the, my experience with Scotland was, was unbelievable. Um, you know, it was a, a decision I made to, to give it a shot and have absolutely no regrets whatsoever. It was a ton of travel, um, time away from my family, um, but I met some guys that will be friends of mine for the rest of my life, just outstanding, outstanding people across the board. Um, and it was interesting because we, you know, we're building a team that doesn't ever really see each other. You know, and in some cases don't know each other all that well. They're playing in all different countries and, and different levels of play and different levels of skill and trying to get them together as a group and, and create a bond among each other was, was really, it was much different than doing it with a college team, right? Where you have the guys kind of on lockdown and you see them all the time. And so in many ways, the, the social aspect was an important part of it. Um, you know, going out and having a pint and, and spending time together and learning about each other and, and developing that culture and making it a social thing as well. Um, finding opportunities to go places together, whether we had them come to California, you know, where we all, they all stayed with families in my club and really got to spend 10 days together as a group, you know, getting together all day, every day, working on things and getting to working on things across wise, but really almost more importantly, getting to know each other and becoming comfortable with each other. You know, we went and, and traveled to the Berlin tournament and, and, and did small sided tournaments and it was all, yeah, about getting better at lacrosse, but ultimately it was about becoming a tight knit group and having a group of guys that believed in each other, felt like they knew each other rather than just being a bunch of guys that flew into someplace and suddenly played lacrosse. Um, 
and it was, you know, it, it took time. It took a lot of work. Um, you know, we had great commitment from the guys down that were down in London. You know, they would come up every weekend that went over and drive up on literally drive up on Friday night after work to get in at one o'clock in the morning into Edinburgh to practice all day Saturday, all day Sunday, drive back Sunday night to be at work on Monday. Um, and it was a huge ask of them. And, and every single one of the guys did it every single weekend that I, that I went over to, to Scotland and showed up, played their butts off on the field, served as leaders, um, you know, went out with the guys, hung out. And we ended up with a bunch of guys that were really, really close. We're really, really tight as a group. And I felt like I became very close with them as well. And they were, they were, you know, I still consider them, even though I'm not with them anymore, to be very, very good friends. I, I you know, I WhatsApp with, with a whole bunch of them all the time. So for us, the lacrosse thing was almost became secondary in some ways. It was, it was about building a group of guys that, that really got along well. Now, do you feel Team Jamaica is a similar experience or vastly different? I think Jamaica is going to be a, a little bit different. Um, it, it, right now, the Jamaican men's national team is largely um, American-based players. Um, and so it's, it's really a two-fold thing going on where we're, what I'm investing in heavily is developing the game in Jamaica um, and getting more kids playing. We're getting equipment over. Um, there's tons of schools that want to play it. We just got to get equipment over for them to be able to play. So we're, you know, raising money to, to buy equipment. We're partnering with True Lacrosse, who's helping us in that effort in, in a tremendous way. Um, we're doing equipment drives. And literally, as soon as we get equipment there, there's a new group of kids playing. It's literally a, an immediate turnaround. It's not like, okay, we have equipment. Now we have to find the kids. It's, there's a school waiting for men's team and a women's team. We just got to get them equipment so that they can play. And what's really cool about it is these are good athletes. Like these kids can run, um, they're into it and they're going to get good quickly. We're going to be adding youth lacrosse soon and an adult league as well. So they can continue playing after high school. So those kids are going to develop into really good players very quickly. On the other side with Jamaica, we have a bunch of Americans who are really, really good. I mean, quality, you know, we have kids on our U19 team who started the division one teams this year as freshmen. So with that group, it's, it is going to be a little more about being able to just pull them together, get them on the right page, X's and O's wise. And, and they'll kind of click, I think quickly because they have a, they all have a very similar lacrosse background, having played high level United States lacrosse, they all have that commonality already. So getting them together as a team will be much easier. The project there is actually building Jamaica lacrosse and, and building it with the kids, um, boys and girls uh, right now in Kingston, but ultimately throughout the island and ultimately hopefully throughout the Caribbean. So how do you get involved in this? Does the phone just ring and say, hey, you want to work with Jamaica lacrosse? No, my, my mother-in-law is Jamaican. Um, my wife, uh, uh, she grew up in Jamaica, moved to the United States when she was like uh, 18 or 19 years old. Um, so my wife is Jamaican and my wife um, is the, uh, I'll say the, the elder stateswoman of the Jamaican national team right now. She's nice. 42 That's years great. old and is going to play in the in the World Cup in, in 2022 for Jamaica and probably then wow. um, start coaching the team after that. So they had their qualifier down in Florida, uh, I guess it's two Novembers ago now. And we went down as a family and we met the guys from, from Jamaica and we talked a lot about lacrosse and what I did and everything. And they reached out to me and said, hey, we'd love for you to help us. And I said, hey, I'd love to help. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah, how it that's happened. Good. 
tell us what's going on uh what's going on in jamaica right now are you with your family relaxing or are you doing training are you setting things up and just give us a glimpse yeah, so we basically my son's schools is is full time distant right now, and I work from home for the for the PLL. Or, you know, we, we we're not going in the office, and uh, so we decided we could spend the month in Jamaica and basically wow. live our lives here, rent a house, and we needed to in order to go into Kingston and work with the kids, we had to quarantine for two weeks, and so we just rented a house, stayed here for two weeks, and and did our regular as if we were back home. And now we're able to go down on the weekends for the next couple of weekends, go into Kingston and we're working with basically the 25 best girls and 25 best boys training as the national team uh, for, for two weekends, which is a lot of fun. That's pretty cool. I think I saw some of that on your Instagram in the last couple of days, uh, some workouts outside and it looks like you're getting things going. Yeah, so. it's cool. And it was going to be wild this weekend. Uh, Karen, my wife's uh, aunt and uncle are actually in video production here. So they're going to come out and do like a full shoot this weekend. So hopefully I'll have some higher quality stuff for Instagram next week, hopefully. Excellent. So I got to ask Nazareth during the glory days, <laughs> right? People don't remember in modern times here, Nazareth versus Washington College, Hobart versus Naz Nazareth, Hobart versus Washington College. These were just great games. And Nazareth could take on Syracuse and stand toe to toe. What was it like back then culturally to be a part of such a prestigious Division Three team? Yeah, and that, it's, it's funny people don't realize that now that you know in 1986 Syracuse was the number one team in the country, and Hobart was a Division Three school and beat them. You know, it was the gap between Division One and Division Three wasn't that big um, back then. We used to we used to scrimmage Syracuse every year. Um, there were a couple of cool things about Naz. One, that that we were we were the underdog. You know, Hobart was the king. They won twelve national championships in a row uh, coming into nineteen ninety two, and we were hunting. You know, we had that was a singular goal for us was to beat Hobart, um, and we lost to them in the semis regularly. And so, you know, I was I always say that having Hobart was probably the greatest gift as a college lacrosse player because there was no like nothing was needed to motivate you. It was just Hobart. And they were just sitting there, um, you know, as we viewed it, laughing at us because we couldn't, because we couldn't beat them. And when you went out to shoot, that's what you thought about was beating Hobart. When you were in the weight room, that's what you thought about. When you, when Nelson was, you know, having, sending us around for our second set of six two twenties, you know, we wanted to curse him, but instead we thought about this is what's going to get us to Hobart. And it was, it was such a driving factor. Um, we played them in 1992 in front of about 8,000 people. Um, and again, they had won 12 national championships in a row and we knocked them off in, in overtime in that game and ended this streak. And without a doubt, the, you know, the highlight of my lacrosse career, it was just an unbelievable feeling. Um, one winning the game was cool, but probably bigger was that all this work paid off and we did it. You know, we, we, it would not have been as much fun if someone else had beaten them first and then we won a championship. We were the ones that knocked them off. We were the ones that accomplished our goal that we had set out for ourselves. Um, and it was cool. I mean, Scott Nelson was, did an amazing job with us. Um, we didn't look at ourselves as a Division three program. You know, we felt we were doing everything that Division one programs were doing. Um, we, you know, when we needed money for stuff for him to give us the things the Division one programs had, we, he went out and raised it, you know, so we had great gear, great equipment. Um, everything was first class and top notch all of the time um, so that we really felt like we were playing division one lacrosse, even though we were in division three. 
Yeah, special insights, Coach, for our players, parents, coaches. Really appreciate it. All right, we'll move on to our guest roundtable section of the show. Uh, really interesting so far hearing about all of Brian's different experiences. Um, and again, he's live in Jamaica, but I think it'd be really interesting to hear about your lacrosse upbringing. You know, where did you fall in love with the sport and the important mentors along the way? Yeah, well, I, I was late to the game. Um, yeah. My freshman year in high school, I played baseball. It's, it's an awful thing to say, I know. My freshman year in high school, I played baseball. Um, the way, this is the way I tell the story. I'm not sure this is exactly how it went, but this is the way I tell the story. I was a center fielder on the baseball team and we had really, really good pitching. And so I would stand out in the outfield every day, like just watching other guys throw the ball back and forth in the lacrosse team practice, like on the adjacent field. And I'd be looking over at them saying, these guys look like they're having a heck of a lot more fun than I am. So at the end of the freshman year, I told the baseball coach I was done. Uh, I told the lacrosse coach I want to play lacrosse and the rest was history. Wow. Love it. Do you have any influential coaches that really changed the direction of your life or your lacrosse career as you rolled along throughout the years? Oh, my God. I mean, in, and even beyond lacrosse. I mean, I, I was a three-sport athlete all the way into, into college even. Um, I would say my entire athletic department in high school, we, we were very, very lucky. We just had amazing guys. My football coach, Ed Manti, my lacrosse coach, Greg Vaughn, uh, you know, the assistants, Paul Marciano, Chris Bellotti, the guys, like, they – they took me under the wing. They took really good care of me. Joe Musso, my wrestling coach. I mean, we, I was just so lucky in high school that I had not only good coaches, but just quality men that, that really um, taught us the right way to do things. Um, and and you know, there was no question about how you handled yourself and, and, and the way you behaved on the field and off the field. There was just no, there was no gray area um, at all. Um, and on top of learning how to play the game. Um, and also, I would say Scott Nelson, obviously at NAS. Um, you know, I, I said I was a three-sport athlete. NAS is where I really fell in love with lacrosse. And like I mentioned the Hobart thing. That was definitely a driving factor. Um, but it was also the style that Nelly let us play. You know, it was go. You know, there was, there was, there was no breaks. It was just go and go, make mistakes. I don't care. You know, it, was, it makes, make errors of, of commission, not errors of omission. You know, go out and do something. And it was a fantastic way to play lacrosse. And I fell in love with the game um, doing that. Um, and I also, I guess I mentioned Scott Hiller as well, who was my coach with the Boston Cannons, um, which I, he was actually younger than me at the time. Um, but he was a guy that, you know, I was on the backside of my career in some ways. Um, you know, I was getting older, but truly believed in me and, you know, put me in great opportunities, uh, made me a captain of the team. Um, you know, let me play the game my style, didn't try to change the way I played and, and really made it fun for me to, to, to play in the cannons and also allowed me to take a, almost a coaching role of the team at the same time and doing a lot of stuff running the defense, which was ultimately huge, I think, for my, for my future as well. So you're a three-sport athlete. How did you end up getting recruited to NAS? I'm sure you had other options. How did that all work out so you landed at Nazareth? It's a funny story. So I, I went to Cornell out of high school. Played three sports, got C's and D's, and my parents said that's the end of that. You're not that you're not a C. We're not paying for C's and D's, so uh, that was over. I then convinced them that the problem wasn't the three sports; the problem was that they were all Division One. And I convinced them if I went to Franklin and Marshall, where only wrestling was Division One, but football and lacrosse were Division Three, it would be a completely <laughs> different story. I got C's and D's again. And my parents were like, that's it. We're not paying for college. You're, you're, you're wasting our money. 
went back home and was coaching at, at Yorktown High School. Great lacrosse tradition there. And I was coaching football. And uh, Scott Nelson was in town recruiting and came out to talk to the football coach, you know, because a whole bunch of the cross players were playing football, but it was fall season. So they're on the football field. And Ron Senevica, the, uh, who was the football coach at the time, said to Nelson, you know, the best athlete on this field is standing right here, Brian Silka, and he's a lacrosse player. And Nelly was like, yeah, you played against my brother in, in high school, right? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I did. And he's like, well, come on over to Mr. Murph. Mr. Murph is this legendary Yorktown lacrosse guy that like started lacrosse in Yorktown. Come over to Mr. Murph later. Have, let's have some dinner and, and we'll talk about Nazareth. And we talked about it. And next thing I knew, I was playing lacrosse at Naz. Well, that's a great story. Of all your stories, which have been excellent, you know, so many of the parents that I, I work with in, lac in the lacrosse career tell their young men, like, you're going to end up at School X, and that's where it's going to be. And so many people end up with a different journey. You know, I actually went to Washington College for a year and then switched and transferred to Loyola. So where I started and thought I would have one kind of career, I really ended up having a whole other journey. And that happens a lot more than people think, that, you know, you're really locked in. We were just, our daughter just chose Scranton University, and we're saying that's, that's a great choice. We're really happy for you. We think, it's a, we think it's a super fit. But once you get there and begin your experience, you know, then we'll, nothing's locked in stone. You can, make new, you can make new decisions as you go and look at, look at your decisions or non-decisions and your parents stepping in and all the things that it takes to grow into a young man. Sometimes it's some hard times or even some failures. But in the end, you ended up in just the right spot and blossomed into you know, a special person and an amazing lacrosse player. But it wasn't wasn't a straight line. Sometimes God writes straight with crooked lines and yours is a little <laughs> bit crooked, but, but you ended up just fine. It, it, you know, I, I always blame it on, on my playing too many sports, but you know, I, I, I wasn't happy at Cornell. Yeah, like you said, it was not the right place for me. And I think I went there um, because of the expectation. Well, if you can get into an Ivy League school, of course you're going to go, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, if you have an opportunity to, to go to the engineering school, of course you're going to go. Oh, and it wasn't what I wanted to do really, you know, and like, you know, it was, it was pressured down to make that decision. Um, and so I would make the joke. I started at Cornell as an engineering major and I graduated from Nazareth as a, as a theater major and absolutely loved theater. And it was, um, you know, it changed my life com completely. And along with my coaches that affected me, my theater professors at Naz, like changed my entire perspective about things and, and really made me good at what I do. Um, I always make the joke that we're all acting all the time. You know, it's a matter of how good we are at it. So before club lacrosse, I'm going backwards in time here a little bit, but you're a Yorktown guy. And I was a Cockeysville guy growing up in Baltimore. Like people forget before you know, the age of club lacrosse, you were really proud of your town. If you were in Long Island and you were a Yorktown guy or you were in Baltimore and you were a Cockeysville guy or a Lutherville guy, that was a big deal. What were your youth career town experience like so i was not a yorktown guy i'm a i'm a bedford mount kisco guy yorktown was our rival i oh, got uh, it okay my, the, 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 so i lost nine high school lacrosse games nine times i lost in high school lacrosse. every single one of them was to yorktown and most of them were not close like i think the closest one was like six goals um but so my, my youth i really didn't play youth sports um organized i played a little, little bit of little league baseball i think i played one year of AYSO soccer. Um, my sports growing up was me and my brothers going out and, and destroying each other in two-on-one football. Um, we built a baseball field where we played two-on-one baseball for hours on end. Um, I didn't really play organized sports as a kid. Um, I ran around all the time. Uh, I ran in the woods all the time. 
Um, you know, I was one of those kids that just was living life and having fun and, and didn't really even realize that I was missing organized sports at the time. Good. It's refreshing to hear. Um, Brian, could you give us a little bit on the post-collegiate, you know, club lacrosse world uh, that you played in? And I feel like you're almost a guy with no age, like you've played in every era or worked in every era here. But um, I know a lot of our parents uh, heard Coach Resch talk about uh, Team Toyota, Mount Washington, things like that. And I'd love to learn more about that from your eyes. Yeah, so pre-MLL, pre um, the, the club lacrosse circuit was unbelievable. It was where the best players in the world played after, after college. And I played, um, you know, probably my best experience was the years I spent playing for the Brine Boston uh, Commonwealth. We had a few different names, but it was always yeah. the same group of guys, just different sponsors. Sure. Uh, so we changed our names. Um, and it was awesome, you know, and we, and, you know, traveling down to, to Baltimore to play those guys, uh, the trips to Long Island were always the, that was always the rivalry. We was playing Duke Tobey and the Long Island Lacrosse Club, uh, MAB Paints out of Philadelphia. And it was just awesome lacrosse. And we kind of had, we were kind of the, uh, you know, we were the, like the blue collar underdog group and we were very, very good. Um, you told, we talked about culture. We had a great culture in our group and everyone got along really, really well, but you know, we weren't the, the Syracuse and Hopkins guys. We were the, the UMass and University of New Hampshire and a few D3 guys from Amherst and stuff, but we, we were very, very good and can compete with anybody. So it was a, it was an unbelievable experience, uh, playing that at that level. And, and, you know, that was my first, other than box across, that was my first time, you know, really playing high level field lacrosse where it was all, you know, the other team was all division one lacrosse players, you know, it was just a, such a cool experience. Um, the other part of that though, was the club circuit, the uh, tournament circuit, which is a whole other thing that is, it still goes on is a, is a really cool thing. But back then, you know, the Vail championship, if you won Vail, you were probably the best lacrosse team in the world outside of the U.S. national team. Um, and, and the tournaments have always been such a big part of the lacrosse culture, the, you know, going to Lake Placid and playing the Placid tournament and going to the war on the shore. Like, you know, I think most of us to look at, like, if you haven't played in those tournaments, you haven't really played lacrosse. I don't care what college you went to and what rings you got or whatever. If you haven't played in Placid, if you haven't played in Vail, you haven't really played lacrosse. Oh, you do my heart good, Coach, because I was an MAB guy, and then I was an FCA guy when we almost pulled off that Vail upset back oh, in yeah, yeah. the early 90s. They wanted to make a movie about it, but they were some special times, weren't they, before so that, the ML? I have a great story about that FAC, F, FCA game. Um, remember, Steve Kisslinger was playing for the other team. Uh, I think it was, was it Mount Washington that beat you guys in the semis? That's a good question. All I know is we were in Bible study while those guys were out having a good time, which is why we had a shot. <laughs> I don't know if you remember this, but I, I, I had lost in the round before. You know, you, so you're sitting on the grass there. Everybody, the fans just build up, right, as teams get knocked out and everybody lines the sideline. It was right before halftime. And you guys got the ball right around midfield and your coach called a timeout. And I remember turning to the guy next to me and saying, that was a really, really bad move. Because all they're going to do is they're going to put Kiss on the ball He's going to strip the guy within two steps and go down and score a goal. <laughs> My buddy's laughing like, that's hilarious. They come back out. Ref blows the whistle. The guy takes a step and a half. Kiss put the ball on the ground, picked it up. Sky whammy fake to the point guy. Pulls it back and pin the corner to score. 
Yeah, we were living on thin ice by the time we got to that final game, but they were really special years, and I think people don't realize how great some of those club men's teams were. Mount Washington, MAB Paints. I mean, we just loaded, and when you played each other, you had a huge crowd because you were watching Gary Gate, Marichak, and Paul, and you know, go against Tony Rash and Petramala, and it was just unbelievable in one shot to see people on those fields, and they'd be packed with fans. To see it roll straight from there into the MLL was just like a perfect marriage, right? Because you then became a professional league with a lot of the same, same men, but now getting what they deserved, you know, getting to play for some money and some prestige. At, at Vail, it was even, you know, the club league was, was, was like the MLL kind of moments, right? That was the precursor to the MLL in many ways in terms of talents and groups of guys. But at Vail, it got even more condensed, right? So like your FCA team probably had you know, some of the best guys from like three or four different clubs. MAB Paints was pulling in like three or four guys from other clubs to make their team even better out in Vail than they were during the spring. It was just ridiculous across. I always love hearing about that stuff. Uh, Brian, when I was growing up, I was a huge Wings fan. I remember you on the Buffalo Bandits, and I've, I got to hear you talk a little bit about um, playing for them and also uh, maybe a highlight of your career was playing in Philadelphia at the Spectrum and hating the fans. So I know Coach and I love hearing about box lacrosse and um, your indoor experience, the major indoor lacrosse league back then. Um, I have a lot of good friends that played for the Wings, but I have nothing good to say about the Wings. <laughs> All right, so we're done with this show. I was a two-year <laughs> member guy. It was fun. Thanks. Um, so I, the, the, the quick start, I, I, you may have heard it, but so playing in, in, like playing in the odd was a – was a cool thing. You know, we had 18,000 people. It was a tight little stadium, but you know, our, our fans were far more courteous than the Philly. <laughs> like Philly was a rough, rough place. And I'll never forget that my sister had a, a young son at the time and brought him, uh, they lived in DC, brought him up to see me play in Philly. And after the game, the first thing she said to me is Brian, I'm never bringing my son to play in Philly again. <laughs> Well, don't, don't feel bad because my dad came up from Baltimore and here he was a kind of a Philly transplant, but became a Baltimore blue bud lacrosse guy. I mean, he liked, you know, outdoor lacrosse and he came up and said, I can't figure out whether that's a lacrosse game, a bad flyers game or a truck and tractor pull event. <laughs> and I was like, well, dad, it's a little bit of all three. You're dead on. Uh, we had some great battles there, though, from the, the championship game. When I was in Rochester, we lost a championship game there in 96, I think, in overtime. I think Gary had six goals or something like that against us. Just an, an incredible – we scored with, like, three seconds left to, to tie it, and then Gary scored in overtime to, to beat us. I don't, I don't know if I ever beat Philly in Philly, actually, in my entire NL career. I don't know if I ever beat Philly in Philly. But did, did you guys win a championship in Buffalo? during that time no we uh okay. we lost to philly in the finals i think yeah. the, the my first year in buffalo then i lost to philly in the finals with rochester the next year yeah there was a lot of losing to philly there's a lot of losing to philly thus i said thus i have friends that played in philly but i do not like the <laughs> <Philadelphia> <laughs> wings <laughs> It's amazing today that the rosters are filled with Canadians with a handful of Americans. And back in our time, it was reverse. Yeah, that was the weird thing about my Buffalo team is that I was the only American on the roster because, um, because of Native Americans, because of, so, because of all the reservations in the area. And a big reason for the lack of Canadians was the number of, of uh, P1 visas that the league could get in order to, to get the guys across the border. And then 
those visas were allocated to to each team so you could only have a few canadians but in in uh up in buffalo with all of the res reses around they all have dual citizenship you know so so all those guys didn't count again like Darius kilgore richie kilgore were essentially canadian box players they grew up playing box across but they didn't they didn't count because they didn't need a visa wow so changing gears a little bit to U.S. lacrosse, a director of the men's game, national director of the men's game. Tell us a little more about that one. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I didn't do it for a real long time. It was. It was a really cool experience. Um, it, it was, uh, you know, very much about organizing people and trying to get people and mo moving in the same direction. I think, and U.S. lacrosse has really shifted their model a little bit since then. But when I did it, I was the basically in charge of nine committees. I had the men's game committee that was my main boss, kind of like my board of directors. But then I had nine committees that, that, that kind of made decisions about everything. And so it was, it was really an organizational job and like a diplomatic position, trying to get consensus to move in different directions on things. I would say the, the, the highlight of that job was the opportunity to work with Steven Berger, who's just one of the coolest human beings <laughs> I've ever been around. Um, and he was my yeah, he, he, he worked under me, but we really worked together on everything. It was not like I was his boss. It was very much like we did things in, in tandem and we had a lot of fun. There was a lot of good people um, working there. And one of the jokes I always tell about it though, is whenever I had a bad day, you know, cause it was at the hall of fame then was where the offices were and Homewood Field is right next to it. So if I was having a bad day, I just went out to Hopkins practice and listen to Petra yell at the guys for a little while. I was like, okay, my day's not so bad. I'm good. I can go back to work. Because, man, he would lay into dudes when they made mistakes. <laughs> Brian, we wanted to ask you, in terms of race, you know, what was your journey and experience like as a black lacrosse player? Um, and really anything along those lines that you could share with our listening audience? Yeah, you know, there's there's been incidents. You know, there's been things that have happened. Um, you know, I, I've told some stories before, but I, you know, overwhelmingly, um, and I would say almost without exception, because there were incidents, um, my, my experience as a black lacrosse player was amazing, you know, and in, in, a, in my experiences, most negative experiences were outside of lacrosse. And it was often my lacrosse family that reminded me that, you know, dude, don't worry about that. You got your brothers over here. Um, and, you know, from, from just a general feeling of welcomeness down to individual incidents where my team or my teammates, um, you know, stepped up or stepped in and we're like, so you don't have to deal with this. We'll take care of it. Um, and it, it's really been for me um, a home and, a, and an awesome place to be throughout my, my life. And I, don't, I, don't, I don't say that in an ignorant way. Like, I, you know, I'm fully aware that there's racism in our sport, there's racism everywhere. Um, but I think that when we, we look at lacrosse, we as lacrosse people will look for perfection. You know, we're, we're highly intelligent people often in lacrosse where, you know, we expect things, we want things to be really, really good all of the time. Um, and we have to remember that lacrosse is just another part of a broader society. And, and this racism is a reality in America. And we can't expect that that's not going to affect our game and it's not going get, to get its way into our game. Um, but again, I would say overwhelmingly, you know, my experiences have been good. I've been treated well. I've been given fantastic opportunities. I've been hired for jobs over and over again. 
Um, but I also recognize that, you know, I, I'm not, I am not a black kid from, from, you know, from the inner city who, who, you know, I grew up in Westchester County in Bedford, New York, you know, I'm, I'm very palatable for people as well. That's maybe the best way to put it. So I also recognize that I was given opportunities that other black people may not have been, you know, because they don't speak like me, they don't dress like me. Um, that I recognize that that is a reality as well. And that, that, that the great things that happened to me, um, I would say in spite of myself being black or just because I am who I am, that there probably were situations where it would have been harder for someone that was darker skinned or spoke in a different way or wore a different style of clothes. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm fully cognizant of it and I constantly work to make things better and, and level the playing field and, and diversify the game and, and make sure the game is comfortable when it does diversify. Um, but personally, the game has been wonderful to me in an almost, you know, continuous manner throughout my career. In recent years, we've heard more of, uh, I guess, the black lacrosse players speaking out on different platforms. And then I see the game and the, the leaders of the sport and the PLL um, trying to bring more cultural awareness. Um, and could you talk a little bit more about the work that you do, um, whether it's been with U.S. lacrosse, the PLL, or just generally, you know, working with people with lacrosse um, in terms of talking about it, having those conversations and um, trying to create a better tomorrow? Yeah, you know, I've had some great conversations. You know, obviously, when when there's been a lot of things that have happened, but you know, the, the the George Floyd thing was kind of a watershed moment. You know, I think a lot of eyes that that were not fully open prior to that were opened, um, and a lot of good people who maybe didn't see what was going on were finally like, "Wow, like, you know, this I we need I need to talk about this more because maybe I don't understand." Um, and had a lot of interesting conversations after that. I mean, I, I make the joke that it was like Kyle Harris and I talked about this, like, I think I just got another job because I'm <laughs> yeah. having like 10 conversations with white people, like every evening <laughs> talking yeah. about my experience. So it was, but at the same time, we're like, this is cool. Like it's, it's, it's such, so good that people want to talk about this. <clears throat> Excuse me. One of the ones I thought was really interesting was a conversation with, with Steve Stenerson. Um, and, you know, I think Stenny's a, uh, uh, he, he, he always wants to do the right thing, you know, and he's always trying to move lacrosse in the right direction. And then I think he really, really deeply cares about the game and about people. Um, and so when all this happened and U.S. lacrosse is putting out the response, it was a lot of it was about um, diversity and inclusion, you know, and, and what are we doing to diversify the game? How can we give more to these programs that are bringing, you know, more people of color and, and more people from other you know, diverse backgrounds into the game. And what Steny and I had a conversation about was that that's really only part of the answer, you know, because you can bring people into the game, but if they don't feel welcome once they are there, they're not going to stay. And so we need to do work and be anti-racist. We can't just be, come on, everybody come on in and play. We have to actually take a stance of being opposed to racism. Um, and we have to work on that and be vocal about it. Um, and I think that's something that Paul and Mike Rabel are, are, have done a fantastic job of. You know, they, they make no qualms about, about where they stand. I think there's a lot of lacrosse players that have, that have done it, that have, um, you know, extended themselves um, and risked criticism to say, 
you know, I'm, I'm against this. I, this, I, I don't believe in this. We, you know, we have to treat people better. Um, I had a conversation today with Ian McKay, uh, played at UVM, Canadian, like outstanding player. And he was someone that, I, you know, I really didn't know him that well. You know, I'd seen him play a few times, but just watching him on social media, he made it very clear where he stood. Um, and I think that it's through the conversations um, that people recognize the importance of doing that. Um, and showing where you stand on something so that the, the young kids that look up to you, the kids that you coach, all understand that this is the way it should be. Um, and, and it is not that way yet. We still have work to do. Um, the, you know, it, the, the whole thing is about building a more perfect union, right? No one ever said it was going to be a perfect union, but we're always trying to be more perfect. Um, and I think that is the key, that we constantly work towards that. Um, we all lean into it. We all do our part. And we all keep talking about it so we never forget that there's still work to be done. Great insights, Coach. Thanks. So moving on to the PLL, Head of Player Experience. What does that entail and what does it look like and how's it going for you? I, I, I love it. <laughs> I absolutely love it. Um, you know, I, I look at my job right now as, as kind of two things. Um, one is a communication piece. And, and ensuring that there's good communication back and forth between the league office and the players. Um, but the other part, part is really about player experience and doing things to ensure that being a, a lacrosse player in the PL is not only a positive ex experience, but a, an experience of growth and offering opportunity. And if you look at you know, the, the NFL, the, the NBA, Major League Baseball, they have all kinds of programs for their players that have never really been done, duplicated in professional lacrosse. And so we're working on doing lots of things to ensure that our, our, our players have every opportunity to be successful both on and off the lacrosse field. And that we're, you know, we're, we're taking care of their mental health, we're taking care of their physical health, we're, we're educating them about career opportunities, educating them about financial planning and, and how to save and how to prepare to retire and doing all of those things to help them in their lives beyond just giving them a paycheck for, for playing lacrosse. I'm really trying to make it a whole experience for them. And, and you know, the Rables professionalize lacrosse to a new level in, in many, many ways. And now we're, we're trying to continue to add on to that and make it as professional as possible and as whole as possible for our players and the guys that participate in the league. And it seems to me what a great next step for you. It almost encompasses all you've accomplished bringing you to this impressive moment with a really neat job to make a difference in athletes' lives and, and the fans' lives and everybody who's watching this new league take off. I just think that's um, a really neat moment in your career from an outsider after having read your resume. I'm like, this is the perfect next spot where he has been well-prepared. Totally. I, I feel the same way, honestly. You know, it was like, I always say, like, I've lived an incredibly blessed life. Like, good things happen to me all of the time. Um, <laughs> I'd, I'd like to think that it's because I treat people pretty well. Um, but I would say, you know, my wife, my son, truly special, but this job just kind of coming together at the right time and being there for me at this point in my career with all the experiences I had, like I, I could not have written a better script. Um, it's a, it's a fantastic organization. You know, I get the, I get to be on the best lacrosse players in the world and, and help them succeed. It's, it's really, uh, I, I could not have written the, the job better if I, <laughs> if I did it myself. And that brings us coach to our closing segment, our rapid fire next homework. Let's go. We practiced this last week. So you ready to do this? Yes. 
All right. So what homework do you have for players who are listening? For players, um, I would say take care of the kids that don't fit in. Um, not just about lacrosse, but in everything in life. You know, as an athlete, we hold positions of power and influence and, and using it for good purposes, I think is really the measure of the man. And, you know, often there's the kids that don't fit in. Um, it's up to us as, as the guys that people look up to to make sure they're taken care of. Homework for parents who are listening. We talked about this a little bit before. I think let your kids find their path, I think would be the, the thing. You know, I, I really believe that if you give your kids, you know, clear and consistent boundaries on right and wrong and, and provide them with a ton of love and, and allow them to follow their path, the end result's usually going to be a good one. Um, it may not be what you envisioned as a parent, but it's probably going to be what's right for them. Amen. To coaches who are listening. Uh, I'll speak specifically to youth coaches. Um, and say, stop trying to win games and start coaching, um, you know, how to make lifelong lacrosse players, I would say, is, is, is really the goal, right? That, and skill development is part of that. You know, you got to teach the kids to play and, and, and all that stuff. But, but having fun and, and teaching the history of the game um, and preaching the love for the sport is, is really what it's all about. Because what we want is for folks to fall in love with the game and then they'll go hit the wall, then they'll do other things and they'll get really good, whether you're a great coach on the field or not. And finally, to wrap this up, what are you reading or listening to these days? Uh, so listen, so I, I'm going straight to music and not, it was, it's been a little while now, but I discovered the Black Pumas. Uh, I've been listening for like a year, year and a half now, and I can't stop listening to them. Because <laughs> every day when I go for my walk, I think what I want to listen today, I think I'm going back to the Black Pumas again. So I'd say anyone that hasn't listened to, to the Black Pumas, check them out. They're fantastic um and i'm also gonna go to a book that i read a while ago that i'll that i'll recommend and this, this one i read gosh it was several years ago but i still just think that it's a great one for for anyone to read really but specifically young athletes it's called living with a seal um it was written by a guy named uh, jesse eitzler who was a he was a, a rapper music guy he's now like a a speaker and does like all kinds of crazy endurance training and everything. Anyway, he at one of these like things where you run more than any human should ever do, <laughs> it was it was being held on a track and he sat down um, with his team of four. They were going to do it as a relay, and next to them sits this like six four, two hundred and sixty pound black guy who puts down a folding chair one bottle of water and a package of crackers. And they have like their bundle of bananas and all this other stuff. And I'm sorry, I'm going long on this one, but they, they, this guy did it alone. And afterwards, Jesse's like, I got to find out who this guy was. Turns out he was a SEAL, a former uh, Navy SEAL. Jesse was like, I want you to come live in my house for a month and train me to be like you. And the, the guy says, I'll do it as long as you promise to do whatever I tell you to do. And the book is about their 30 days together, largely in his apartment in New York City and the torture he put them through. But in the end, what it's really about is that we don't tap into our capabilities at all. And that I think the SEALs motto is that most, most human beings get 40% of what they're able to do is what they tap into. The SEALs are trying to get that other 60. And that's kind of what the book's about, that you think you can't do that, you actually can. That's fantastic. I feel like you might have some people calling you, Brian, after this podcast saying, I want to do what you do. Um, so just have to think about how you're going to answer that. Uh, a lot of people would probably love to have your job. As you described it, it sounds so cool. So 
we're really grateful uh, to have shared this conversation with you. We're excited to follow you and the PLL in the upcoming years. And we're going to sign off from Concha Hawkins. So for Brian Silcott, Coach Bill Leahy, our producer Justin, myself, Coach Coop, we're signing off from Next Headquarters. Thank you. Oh, you were great, Coach. We're really grateful. Thanks. Thanks, man. That was fun. <laughs>